0: Hello friends, welcome back to Imago Gay, a play on the term Imago Day, because the dignity of LGBTQ lives matter. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Melody Rashman, who will be discussing some of the contents of her dissertation, Identity, Counternarrative, and Community and Progressive Christian Women's Memoir, which you can find on ProQuest or by direct messaging her on Instagram at Melodyof Life. If you followed last week's episode, you might be expecting part two of Journey to Affirming Theology, which will be out next week, because I wanted to interject some theological musings on the place and importance of personal story. When we think about testimony in scripture, eyewitness accounts, what a person saw or heard, Life stories like Ruth and Esther. The testimony of John and Revelation or the visions of Isaiah and Daniel. Personal experience with the world and with God matter. So what is the place of personal story when building a reflective theology? How do we include the proverbial Yelp review of certain Christian disciplines or traditions and use it to inform our present belief and practices? What's the role of feedback, and should it be taken into consideration when building a belief about who God is? Before we start today's conversation, I'm your host, Kendra Arsnow, and our sponsors for today are Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. So make sure you sign up for their newsletters, where you will get the latest on queer news and happenings. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome my guest today, Dr. Melody Rashman.
1: Uh, hi, my name is Dr. Melody Rashman as of last week. That's very oh, exciting. Congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. I am now a PhD in English with a secondary concentration in gender studies from the University of Colorado Boulder. Like I said, I defended my dissertation last Thursday, so I'm still getting used to the title. Um, My dissertation work is about progressive Christian women and memoir and the ways in which they use the memoir form to kind of assert the authenticity of their individual identities as well as counter the dominant narratives of Christianity and womanhood. That are offered by uh, hegemonic, that's a big academic word that basically means dominant and uh, self-reinforcing Christianity, specifically in the United States in response to the white evangelical church. So that's kind of the academic side of who I am. Personally, I am a bisexual, biracial woman who grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I am a pastor's kid. I am an alum of Andrews University, and some of my listeners might remember my name because in 2014, when I was editor-in-chief of the student movement, I published the first ever, I think, in the history of the Adventist churches, school papers at least, issue focusing on and platforming the stories of LGBTQ plus Christian something that led to some notoriety and apparently had Ted Wilson name dropping me in board meetings as a problem, which is one of my like claims to fame forever, but that's who I am uh, before we go any
0: further. (laughs) I I love that we have these connections, bisexual, biracial, really even bicultural, Mm. you know, looking at what life in the secular world and the Christian world, you know, navigating those two spaces. But you also have a very unique introduction to me. You reached out to me because you had a similar story to mine as far as like having some negative fallout from announcing your own bisexual identity.
1: Yeah, we have the dubiously (laughs) admirable claim to fame of (laughs) both being bright young thinkers who were recruited by church institutions to create content with the directive that we were welcome to ask any question, encourage ambiguity, go places no one had gone before. And then in both and of get our those cases, engagements, right? Yeah. And get those engagements, reach people who have <laughs> questions, you know, like, be willing to ask questions that no one else in the church is asking. And then in both of our cases, we came out as bisexual publicly and then dramatically saw that support immediately drop away and discovered (laughs) that all of those invitations were conditional in ways that they had not necessarily been explained to be prior to to those moments.
0: Exactly. And it's it's one of those things where it's like this was the unspoken contract. Oh, I I really actually did not know that piece of the information.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think both of us are people who have invested a lot in loving the church and truly loving these people and this message and it has been very painful to realize that that is a one-sided relationship and that the church has not necessarily loved and believed in and invested in us in ways that we have loved and believed in and invested in the church.
0: Exactly. I was so actually relieved and thankful when you sent the message because for me, I was still in a place where I was wondering if I made it all up, like let, were, were things as bigoted as they felt? Uh, I think sometimes I go into this process of gaslighting myself and just to realize, no, this experience was shared by somebody else who can second what happened. It kind of affirmed my own story. So I just want to say thank you. for. Oh, thank you.
1: <laughs> I wish it hadn't happened to you again since it's hard having to me, but It is, I think I I mentioned in my dissertation that it can, I think the word used gaslighting is really great. The way that being in these spaces can be really, it can kind of encourage you to doubt yourself because you hear one thing and then you see another thing happen, especially, and people talk about this all the time in Christian spaces, these messages of all are welcome, all are welcome, but there's always an asterisk like, oh, all are welcome, but you're not allowed to be in charge of potluck if you're married to a woman and you're also a woman or, Oh, all are welcome. But like, we're not going to put you on the platform if you have visible tattoos, unless you talk about them as part of your wild days and not something you currently want. Right. It's always. And so it can be really, it can encourage you to doubt who you are. Did I do something wrong? Maybe I asked the wrong questions. Maybe I was asking for something I shouldn't have asked for. Maybe I made the mistake. And I think people in structures of power want us to question ourselves, because if we Mm -hmm. question ourselves, then we're less likely to make public testimony about what's happened to us. And we're less likely to create these archives for other people to see, to okay. affirm their own experiences.
0: One thing I want to connect with you on is bisexuality. Um, I think we haven't really explicitly talked about that on the podcast, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about your journey and your experience. And I wonder if you fall into kind of the statistics where uh, statistically bi people don't tend to come out till later on in life maybe it's uh, a discovery process. Maybe it's because, and I, for myself, I call it uh, a process of passing, right? Like Mm -hmm. as a bi person, I can pass as straight in uh, Christian circles because there's a part of me that is accepted. um, And I can just like reject that part of me that's not accepted until, you know, you're confronted with it in a way that you can't quite reject. So (laughs) Absolutely.
1: I think that bisexuality, especially in Christian spaces, is really interesting because like you said, we often come to it quite late because we're doing the thing we're supposed to do. We like boys, right? Or we like we like whoever we have been told we should like within the, the paradigm of heteronormativity. I grew up pretty boy crazy and extremely nerdy at the same time, so I had no way to actually effectively act on that boy craziness because I was like this weird, awkward kid who went to a tiny Adventist school and like I was taller than all the boys, and I read too much, and all I wanted to do was talk about Lord of the Rings, and they did not want to do that. <laughs> I, if you've seen the movie Turning Red from Pixar, it's a pretty accurate image of who I was at 13 years old. <laughs> but replace the boy band with uh, my poster of Orlando Bloom, who I talked to about my feelings. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure he's a great listener. <laughs> such a great listener, so thoughtful, very good at blacksmithing as well. But yeah, so I grew up like I liked boys, good. Done. And then I went to college and I saw myself as straight. And as I alluded to in the introduction, I worked for the student movement, which is the independent student newspaper. It's technically owned by the student association. Um, I saw myself as straight. And then Around a month into my junior year, one of my dear friends who I did have a crush on came out to me as gay. <laughs> I had a crush on him because he was into Jane Austen and he was so well dressed. And yeah, anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so he came out to me as gay. And suddenly I had to kind of like reckon with my own internalized homophobia and be like, Well, you're not these people out there. You're my friend and you're a wonderful person. You're one of the most wonderful people I knew. And so we got this idea to do the LGBTQ issue. We got students to to either anonymously or with their first names or some of them with their full names, just write about what it what it was like for them to be queer, how they experienced attraction, who they were as people. I ended this editorial by saying, like, if you're queer. God loves you and you're so brave and I'm so proud of you basically. Mm-hmm. And I got into like a two week fight with the administration over this paragraph because oh, wow. they were afraid it would be seen as like inherently condoning queerness. And I was like, I'm not budging. Like I'm keeping this paragraph. So I, I kind of did broadcast the, to the entire like international Adventist community. My name is Melody and I'm straight, which was perhaps a little premature in that establishing of the records. But yeah. It was a really powerful moment for me because I had all these queer folks come out to me, write me letters, thank me, et cetera. And then I graduated. And I feel like, especially if you are someone who's grown up trying to be good and follow the rules and you're very aware of the regulations, it's sometimes easier to ask questions about who you are once you're no longer in that space, especially that very public space that I was in. And so I was living with a friend from school that summer, and hey, if you're listening to this, psych! I guess you get to finally find out that you're the reason for my gay awakening. She's very flattering, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> she knows I'm bi, but I don't think I've ever told her that she's the reason why I knew. And I was living with her this summer, and like. You know how like when you find out, realize you're bi, you kind of look backwards and then you recognize all of the extremely gay things you were doing. And you're like, ah, yes. You mean most people don't like deeply fixate on like Kristen Stewart and Keira Knightley. And like, it's super (laughs) excited when a female friend's coming over and you're going to snuggle under the blankets and watch Harry Potter on a snow day. Is that not like heterosexual behavior? Right. I was living with her and I just like could not stop thinking about her. And I was like, oh, Oh no. Oh wow. I can't look at these feelings. I'm afraid to. And then a friend of mine who had worked with me on the student movement came over for a bonfire one night and they said to me, you know, I I think I'm bisexual. And I was like, Oh, how did you know? And they were like, Oh, you know, and they told me basically exactly what my experience had been for the last several years. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and then like, I kind of thought about it for a while. The day I came out to my friends was the same day that gay marriage passed in the United States, which was really oh, wow. emotional day. Yeah. So I came to realize like, yes, I'm bisexual. I am attracted to all kinds of people. I think being bi is extremely fun because the world is full of gorgeous people and it's really fun to be attracted to them. But I think the other aspect of bisexuality is the fact that you always feel this kind of pressure to pick a side, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about bi erasure a lot uh, in the bi community, the fact that you're both seen simultaneously as too queer and not queer enough. Mm -hmm. um, And the way that there's an impulse to to kind of define you by whoever your partner is. I met my now husband the day after I came out as bi and we ended up dating three months later. And then we got married in 2020 and 2021, just pandemic thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that the fact that I have had a male partner for the entire time I've been at by has really caused me to struggle with that identification because I have this sense of, oh, am I not really bi if I haven't dated a woman? And oh, it's my uh, bisexuality valid. And do I have the authority to talk about what it means to be queer if yeah. I haven't like experienced as much oppression, which I think is a problematic construction because we shouldn't be defining queerness by how much you've been oppressed. That's a really depressing way to understand our identities and the vibrancy mm-hmm. of those things. But yeah, so I'm bi, I am proudly bi, I am loudly bi. Uh, mm-hmm. At my wedding to my husband, one of our readings was a Bergafel Burger v, v. Hodges Uh, And I mentioned my queerness and my wedding vows because it's really important to me, both that people I know and especially members of my family, younger members of my family and so forth, have a model of what open and proud and enthusiastic queerness is. And I also think it's also really important to by people more generally to hide, kind of insist on that visibility and that validity. And I love these earrings. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, one of my best friends and I have a tradition where we send each other like naked lady earrings on Valentine's day. Okay. It's our own personal little like uh, rejoinder to purity culture and our embrace of our bodies.
0: <laughs> yes. I love it. I love it. And so you are doing some really interesting work. You've just defended your dissertation and, Something that, you know, you talk about and something that I found true to myself is kind of looking at the authority of the memoir. For myself, I think a big part of even why I was let go from my position is there's this kind of inherent belief that once you identify as bi, like you're no longer able to do good exegesis, Mm -hmm. um, that you somehow lose credibility And that your experience now is so tainted that you can't possibly come to a correct answer because your lens is so colored. And it's this assumption that there is something like a pure lens Mm -hmm. uh, that you can interpret scripture uh, in a way that is without any bias and that is purely just reason and empiricism. But you kind of challenge that notion. And I was wondering, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about that because that's so interesting.
1: Yeah. There's this kind of implicit idea in any criticism of using a queer lens or other lenses like, oh, I'm going to read this through a Black lens or an Indigenous lens or the lens of the poor or something that you are going to be colored by that experience. Yes, of course you are. There is no such thing as an objective observer, right? And for so long, we have kind of made invisible the positionality of the like straight white European seminary trained dude as the objective biblical interpreter, which for one thing puts aside that literally no one working today can say what the Bible really means because it's written in ancient forms of several languages. It's been passed on through all of these different kinds of, textual traditions through all of these different things, one of the claims that my dissertation makes and that the progressive Christian community that I study makes as they draw on these different traditions of uh, theology, whether that's black theology, liberation theology, queer theology, is that A, everyone brings a perspective to the text. B, that's not a bad thing, and C, that your experience can be a form of authority that allows you to encounter truths in the text that might have otherwise been overlooked. For me, one of the most powerful theological traditions that I got to learn about during this project is womanist theology, which is a outgrowth of womanism which was a term coined by Alice Walker to kind of refer to feminist work by Black women that specifically emphasized Black thriving and the Black body and the Black community in ways that had been overlooked both by mainstream um, male-led civil rights work and also in kind of white-dominated feminist work. And one of the things womanist theology does as kind of an outgrowth of Black liberation theology is that it reads the Bible from below and it kind of looks at figures that are historically overlooked in theology probably the most famous example of this is hagar and the way that it kind of centralizes the story of hagar as an exploited woman who has been sexually assaulted by her enslaver who is kind of abandoned and the way that she is one of the only people in the hebrew bible who is willing to like confront god and name god and say like hey like, what are you going to do for me? Like you need to bless me. And I think that that kind of perspective is something that cannot be, or is less likely to be encountered unless we have various interpreters of the Bible. Right.
0: Exactly. And I realized like so much of my, you know, definitely my seminary experience was just the ability to validate my own voice and my own relationship with God once again. And something I say to people all the time is like, I wish instead of people saying, you know, let me introduce you to the God of the Bible. They said something along the lines of, let me reintroduce you to the God that you're already in contact Mm -hmm. with. Let me give you another picture of, of some of the history and some of these parts of who God is that maybe you didn't know before, but it's not to negate the experience that you're mm-hmm. already having, right? I think one
1: of the fundamental conflicts we see right now between conservative Christianity, whether that's within the Adventist church or outside of it and more progressive Christianity is this question of authority, right? I study a memoir. Memoir as a genre has roots in Christianity and testimony probably the first, the most widely agreed on first memoir in, or autobiography in English or not in English, but in the West, it was in Latin, (laughs) is St. Augustine's Confessions, which sets this standard for this model of the person narrating their relationship to God, their testimony. I was lost. And then I was found. It follows these very familiar beats, right? And any of us who grew up in the church, or who are in the church today are familiar with the way that we love testimonies. We want to trot out someone who says, ah, yes, I did hard drugs and I have been out there. I've done all those things. And then I had a come to Jesus moment and I changed my life. And now I am here and I am saved. We love that kind of story. And we have this problem within the church where we give a huge amount of authority to these testimonies that fit our model of what your life is supposed to look like. And then conversely, we completely discredit the testimonies of anyone who doesn't agree with those conclusions, like you said, right? We're saying, oh, okay, we'll say your testimony matters and it's authoritative and it's wonderful if it matches this model of, oh, I was in the world and it was terrible. And, you know, I just did like cocaine every minute and I had (laughs) nothing but meaningless sex. And then like, I got a invitation to go to a study on Daniel and Revelation and it answered all my questions and now I'm in the Adventist church and I'm happy and I'm good.
0: Right. But we
1: we don't want to listen to the stories of people whose experience doesn't reflect that model.
0: Right. And
1: I think that is a mistake. And even if you end up believing something different theologically than the stories of people who have deconstructed, who have either entirely left the church or who have arrived at different theological conclusions than you have, it is you do a disservice to yourself and to the possibilities of what church can look like if you're not willing to listen to those stories, right? Because first of all, I think like epistemologically, that is when we're deciding how we know what we know, it is troubling to privilege testimony sometimes and not other times. Conversely, I do think there is a place for... Augmenting testimony with intellectual engagement, with some kind of foundational understanding. One of the things I really like about Seventh-day Adventism is this kind of insistence on grounding in history, Mm. in study, and intellectual engagement. The danger of testimony is absolute truth, is that there's no way to kind of disprove someone's testimony of their own experiences and emotions. But that doesn't mean that those testimonies can't be damaging. For example, cult members would say, oh, like, yeah, this changed my life. You should also be a Scientologist or people like running multi-level marketing schemes or selling essential oils instead of vaccines. Like testimony alone isn't authoritative, but it has to, I think, be an aspect of testimony. And you can, I think, desire theological engagement without denying, especially the hurt that people have gone through. That's where it always comes exactly. up is people saying I was hurt and people saying, no, you weren't, or you were hurt because you were selfish or you were hurt because you were rebellious. People ask people like, oh, you left the church because the worship band wasn't good or because you wanted to sleep in on Saturdays and play video games. And I think the worst thing we can do is tell people what their story is instead of listening to them. Right. Because right. that's never going to, get you anywhere except for further alienation.
0: I love that you, you mentioned this point about like kind of the difference between like a cult and kind of this responsive relationship with religion is that they hear you when you say, Hey, this affects me or this hurt me. And I think maybe the problem with doctrine, right? It says, well, you can never challenge this. But for example, you know, I just did an episode on uh, like me and my experience as a woman actually had theological implications. For example, you know, my own view on women's ordination or my view on male headship or like all of those things were challenged because of my experience as a woman under that structure and at some point I said this doesn't work or this sets up uh, a system that is vulnerable to abuse whether or not this person takes advantage of it in that way like there are things that you know experience brings that should be a corrective but there's this kind of like not listening to people who are saying this is this hurts but the church saying well that's kind of your fault when you're mm-hmm. doing it wrong. Uh, I think, yeah, it's, you're making a good point.
1: I think that what you just mentioned about the difference like a cult and that listening experience is really interesting and important. And I think that's where kind of the community from the subtitle of my dissertation, my dissertation is about identity, counter-narrative and community comes in, in that community both holds us accountable for our own kind of things we might overlook while also allowing us to encounter possibilities we hadn't encountered. But one of the fundamental foundations, I think, of a healthy community is a mutual respect and a mutual willingness to kind of allow the other person to disagree with you, to see the humanity of the other person. Uh, there's a quote that I really love from uh, theologian and Yale Divinity School professor, Willie James Jennings. He is a Black theologian at the Yale Divinity School who just wrote a book called After Whiteness, which is about looking at what seminary classrooms might look like once we reckon with this kind of history of white supremacy and colonialism and how that has affected our theology. Mm-hmm. And he he kind of has this central idea in his book of the classroom as a space of thinking and listening together. It's a space where it's not, oh, here's the teacher who's going to impart us this knowledge from on high as if he himself is God giving the Ten Commandments commandments to Moses. Instead, it's this space where you recognize that we are learning together, that we can kind of make up for each other's weaknesses, that we can exist in tension, but also that we are engaged with this fundamental recognition of each other's humanity and this engagement and authenticity. And he says, and in such thinking together, we begin to see what we had not seen before. We belong to each other. We belong together. Belonging must be the hermeneutic starting point from which we think the social, the political, the individual, the ecclesial, and most crucial for this work, the educational. So this idea that if we recognize these church spaces as being places where we are different, but we also belong to each other, that we are responsible for each other's thriving, for each other's encouragement, that creates this kind of ethic of empathy that affects the way that we listen to each other and learn together.
0: We belong to each other. All right, we are halfway through the episode. And if you'd like, you can take a deep breath. Okay, let's get back into it.
1: Distinction I like to make between identity politics and standpoint point theory that I think is really relevant here. So identity politics, of course, this idea that you you gain absolute authority from your experience of identity. Right. And you'll see this often on social media, on these Instagram posts saying like, oh, you shouldn't question the experience of someone because they have more experience than you because of their identity. Right. So this will come up saying, listen to indigenous people about indigenous issues, listen to black people about black issues. And this is, I think, a really good starting point and a really, most of the time, it's a really great idea. Like absolutely listen to black women about the experience of black women. Don't listen to like a white lady telling you about it. Like read Octavia Butler or Toni Morrison, don't read the help, right? (laughs) But the problem with this as a model is that all you need to do is find one person with that identity who disagrees? And from this model, you have the same amount of authority. So you have our favorite Ben Carson, right? Yeah. Saying, oh, Black people need to work harder and like you shouldn't do these things. And I love Trump. And under this model, he has the exact same amount of authority as uh, like a Black Lives Matter activist, right? Um, right. Within the context of the church. All you need is one gay man saying, oh, I used to be homosexual and then I joined the church and God cured me. And within the model of identity politics, he has just as much of authority as someone who says, no, I'm queer and a Christian. And so where standpoint theory, which is a feminist theory developed during second wave feminism comes in, is it says, A... People from oppressed groups do have more authority and a better perspective on the truth, especially in regards to their own oppression than people in positions of power. But, B, you need to look for shared experiences or some form of consensus within those groups, right? And yeah. the individual perspectives are still valuable, but it's the conversation between those perspectives that can come closest to giving us truth. So if one black woman like Candace Owens says, oh, I've never been oppressed in my life. You need to get over this. And 99 black women say, oh, this is what's happened to me. That consensus matters more than this lone kind of discordant voice. And right. I think that's a model for kind of negotiating that tension between individual testimony and shared experience, especially in the relationship of church experience.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think for the majority of church history, maybe uh, you know, the LGBTQ affirming voice has been like, well, this is just the, this is just the lone experience. in fact, I was told, look, we have like 80 professors who have signed this document and they're, they're all in agreement, uh, that homosexuality is wrong. And basically how can you argue with that? You're just one person. And so how do you deal with those types of where the church at large kind of isn't a consensus against, Uh, Affirming LGBTQ lives. So, how how does that fit in that I'm not just the straggler voice, the fringe voice uh, that might not have that much authority? What
1: I study in my dissertation is the way that the internet has been really conducive to opposing these traditional structures of authority. Prior to like the 90s, church media was usually a kind of a one way. Mm Experience, you might have people calling into the radio or have, writing a letter to the editor, but there was always still the ability to filter or censor the kind of feedback that you were broadcasting, right? So you have. Right evangelists like Billy Graham on the radio and doing his big meetings, you have the voice of prophecy or the three angels network or the Adventist review and all of these kind of models of one-way church communication. And what we see at the internet is that through the power of hashtags or the power of blogging or podcasts, we have this space where people are able to talk back without having that kind of institutional backing, that kind of credentialing. Yeah. Uh, I focus on Rachel Held Evans, who was an evangelical blogger, as a model of this kind of work because she was just a pastor's kid who went to Christian school, took one theology class, and then she got a journalism degree and she started blogging about these questions she had about gender in the church, about doubt about ethics, all of these things. And she ended up amassing a huge following. She published several books. She founded two conferences. And by the time she died tragically in 2019, she had like hundreds of thousands of people who were listening to her. Right. And what I think is really interesting about the figure of Rachel Held Evans is that she was, I think, correctly identified as a threat by these institutions who are invested in propping up this very narrow understanding of white, cisgendered, masculine authority and heteronormativity and complementary and gender relations, because she was a woman talking, already their like most feared thing, without yeah. this kind of credentialing authority. And one of the things I think that people who are speaking out against these dominant narratives are put in a position where they have to do is we do have to work harder both to kind of substantiate what happened to us. People want to see receipts. Oh, can you show me a screenshot of where someone said that you were fired because you were gay? Oh, can you show me a paper trail of these things, which is a burden of proof that is not put on people who have testimonies or stories that kind of fit these dominant, dominant understandings. But it's also, I think why creating these archives is so important, right? So that we can say like, oh, it's not just me, it's them and them and them and them. And it's why we're forced to do so much extra research. It's why pretty much any gay Christian you talk to can like recite Greek like exegesis on these six (laughs) clobber verses because there's an expectation if you are queer or black or disabled or any minority category, that you're not just responsible for the truth of your own story, but you're also responsible for defending the experiences, stories, claims of every other person who is in your identity category. I think you can see this in the fact that like in most seminaries, like you just have a class on, paul or on hebrews and then you have to take an elective if you want to read feminist theology or if you want to read black theology right you're not even
0: going to get any of those at andrews so (laughs)
1: nope (laughs) that's at like lutheran seminaries that you
0: have those options (laughs) yeah no you're definitely not going to get any of that it's so funny that you say that about the internet because tiktok has been like one of my favorite modes. Oh my educating gosh, myself. TikTok.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I want to write a whole second dissertation just about TikTok and like decentralized authority. Ex evangelical TikTok is so good in yeah. the ways that like it is this space where people can just like talk about what happened to them without any kind of need for oh getting approved by a magazine or getting included or anything like that. Um, of course, the flip side of this problem is that if anyone can have authority on the internet, how do we make sure that we're not like, how does Amboozled, that model right, for like, yeah. yeah, cults. And like, look at like, I'm really interested in cults, not in joining and standing. Same, to same. Be clear. I am obsessed cults. with cults. <laughs> I love reading about cults. And I think it's because I'm, I'm not, one of those people who's like, oh, Adventism is a cult. I don't think Adventism is a cult. I think it is Protestantism with a slightly different flavor. But I do think that the more extreme end of Adventism often shares a lot of characteristics with cults, whether that is a very dogmatic, belief that only you and your small in-group, even within the larger group of Adventism have the truth that anyone who questions that or disagrees with you is out to get you, that you should cut yourself off from outside influences, the use of highly specialized language, the encouragement to like, get rid of your money and sell all your possessions and burn your CDs and all of these things. Yeah. Um, I'm about to start reading cultish, but it's a book about the linguistics of cults, which is right mm. up my alley. I, but, please send me all of your cult
0: material. Absolutely. I'm ready
1: to read it. <laughs> I want to join my cult of yes. academia, where we work for twenty thousand dollars a year and read too much and never contribute <laughs> to society in useful ways. I'm already there's, there. a whole, there's a whole other conversation to be had about how PhD programs are low key a multi level marketing scheme because oh, we just shoot. make more PhDs and then we don't have jobs for them. <laughs> (laughs) But, but yeah, I'm really interested in cults. I'm super interested right now in QAnon and the ways in which QAnon kind of intersects and recruits directly from people who are already conservative evangelical Christians, Mm. the way that the way evangelicalism and also very much so Adventism takes people, especially in North America, who are not actually being oppressed. And who have so much of their identity built up around these fantasies of oppression, these kind of forms of conspiratorial thinking, don't trust authority, accept this authority, everyone's mm-hmm. out to get you, everyone outside of your group is secretly sinister and evil and all these things. And how things like QAnon prey upon those existing kind of biases, those attitudes, and they say like, yes, yes you're right. Absolutely. And you can be part of this small group that's fighting back. And we're going to give you all the information via codes on the internet. And you know, if you're being banned from Facebook or if the New York times is telling you they're wrong, that's just because they're, they know you're close. And I'm so fascinated in the ways in which, growing up with fundamentalist religion can predispose you towards other forms of fundamentalism. But I think that, yeah, that fundamentalist bent, instead of instead of adjusting your kind of attitudes and saying, oh, okay, well, I'll have a more complex view of things where I understand that people make mistakes and no one has 100% of the truth, but together we can kind of build these fruitful and good relationships and do our best, you just look for a new source of authority, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're still trapped in this fundamentalist thinking. And this is something, honestly, that I see on the left as well, is this kind of desire to be a hundred percent right all the time. This, because Being a person is really hard, right?
0: Right. Like being an
1: adult is really hard. Making ethical decisions is really hard. Uh, If anyone else is a fan of the show, The Good Place, which I really love, one of the major arguments of that show is that it's really difficult to be a good person in like contemporary late stage capitalism. And that every problem we encounter has different outcomes. There's different ways you could interpret those problems. People make different decisions based on their background and their circumstance and all of those things. And we hate that. We want to be given... A black and white answer, a yes or no, a binary. We want to be saying, "Do this, don't do that. Do that, don't do that," and you'll be okay. Um, And growing up, especially in a conservative religion, absolutely gives you that certainty, Mm -hmm. and it can be really frightening to lose that certainty. I I am really interested, like we said, in cults, but also in cult deprogramming. How do Mm -hmm. you reach someone who has these fundamental fears? And the only thing I have found that consistently comes up is relationship. Like I. I didn't start with doing research on proof texts or reading queer theology. I started because my friend came out to me and I loved him and I said, okay, I've been told that queer people are out to get you, that they're pedophiles, that they hate God, all of these things. And that does not line up, but with what I know about my friend And because of that discomfort, I started doing research and I truly believe that the research was important and that the hermeneutics that I I used were good hermeneutics, that all of that work was good and valid work. But the important thing is the catalyst to that work was love, right? Right. I think that's one of the reasons that I came out when I did. I wanted my conservative family and friends to love someone who was queer because then I couldn't just be an issue. I was a person and they had to reconcile all those messages. And I've already seen the change that has made. My parents, I don't think, would consider themselves fully LGBTQ affirming, but I've watched the ways in which their attitudes have shifted Mm. and their language has shifted over the years since I came out. Um, My mother... (laughs) came back one evening from a AY and Adventist youth meeting. And she said, you know, I'm probably going to get in trouble. I probably shouldn't have said what I said. And I was like, oh, what did you say? And she said, oh, someone during the lesson said that there won't be any gay people in heaven because you can't be gay and homosexual. And I said to him, well, I think that's between them and God and we shouldn't judge. <laughs> and she's like, I probably shouldn't have said that. I'll probably get in trouble. And I started crying and I was like, mom, that's so great. Like yeah. that is so great. And <laughs> like, I don't think that my mom, I don't think has read the theology books I bought her yet. Like she changed her mind because she loves me. And because she knows that like, I'm not just some like evil homosexual out there to like have an agenda. I do have a homosexual agenda and it is the full (laughs) inclusion, acceptance and embrace of all queer people, but Hey, (laughs) that's not like, that's not why. Right. I think. It sounds cliched and idealistic and it's not easy to theorize, but it comes down to love. It comes down to relationship. That's how we change people's mind. And I think, I think one of those really fundamental questions that you have to ask as someone who has stepped away from the church or is considering stepping away from the church is what do we owe to each other? What how much, how long do we keep hoping that individuals will listen to us and love us and believe us? And I think that's one of those cases where, A, each person, especially if they're in a position where they've been marginalized or hurt, gets to make those boundaries for themselves. It is not the responsibility of oppressed people to keep like testifying and speaking their truth to people who might not listen to them. But I think it is also our invitation, if we have the thick skin necessary and the support structures and the power to do so, to keep reaching out in relationship not to institutions, but to individuals. I think institutions are designed to not change and that often that change has to come either from the ground up or from a complete restructuring of an institution because sometimes institutions are designed in ways that are fundamentally racist or sexist or what have you. But I do think that relationship is one of those places where you can see change. And that's where I struggle because... I think that there are some relationships that are just abusive and terrible and that you can get trapped in those relationships out of this kind of misguided belief that it's your job to keep like witnessing to this person. Right. But I also have seen the ways that relationship can create change and can create these really beautiful transformations. I don't know. I don't know who I would be if I hadn't had relationships with people who were further to the left of me or more progressive of me, who were patient with me and my questions. Rachel Held Evans, in one of her last blog posts, talked about how she hadn't had to figure out what she believed. And then she had kids. And then she suddenly, like, oh no, I need to have like some kind of articulated message and values because I can't raise my three year old with, ah, yes, ambiguity. Da, 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 da. And what she settled on is we are a family that believes in the possibility of mystery which is kind of like, what do you think? And here's our values. And maybe those values will be expressed for you in Christianity. Maybe they'll be expressed for you in Buddhism. Maybe they'll be expressed for you in something else, but our values as a family are love and inclusion and belonging and justice and so forth. I describe myself as having transformed my understanding of spirituality. Uh, And like I say in the project, like one of the reasons I did this project is because I was looking for a larger and warmer and more rich form of Christianity to belong to. There's an author, Episcopalian, maybe you've read Barbara Brown Taylor. She's an Episcopal priest and professor. She talks about how this is the story she grew up with. And so like, this is the story that she's going to be building her understanding and meaning around just because like, it was so foundational for her that it wouldn't really make sense for her to go to Buddhism or Islam or something like that. And I kind of feel that in that like, this is where I'm from and it's always going to be where I'm from. There's two poems I really love in thinking through my understanding of religion. And I didn't read them on air because I'm not sure how copyright and fair use works. But (laughs) one of them is called inventory and it's the poet talking about growing up in Michigan and then like living elsewhere and like wanting to come home to Michigan and the last line is let us all be from somewhere let us tell each other everything we can In Greta Gerwig's 2017 film, Lady Bird, the principal of Lady Bird's Catholic high school reads her college application essay in which she talks about her hometown. You clearly love Sacramento, the principal, Sister Sarah Joan says. I do, Lady Bird asks incredulously. I was just describing it. It comes across as love, Sister Sarah Joan replies. Sure, Lady Bird says, dismissive. She has spent the entire film complaining about Sacramento, aching to leave it behind for a glamorous life in New York City. I guess I pay attention, she capitulates. Sister Sarah Joan pauses then. Don't you think maybe they are the same thing, she asks gently, love and attention.
0: Mm.
1: I do not know if I believe in God or Christianity or the church or any of it, but I am paying attention.
0: Mm. I love that.
1: I love that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I wrote that at like 3am weeping (laughs) (laughs) and I'm just like processing my trauma at three in the morning. But yeah, I, some days I don't believe in God and some days I really want to, and I don't know. I think one of the gifts that this project has given me and that deconstruction has given me is the ability to live with tension and ambiguity that Mm -hmm. idea that like it's okay to not have an answer today and that doesn't mean you're bad and I also think a fundamental belief that if God is good and loving and all understanding that he'll meet us where we were at and in the context of what happened to us and if that led us to deconstruction he'll be understanding
0: but (laughs) yeah let us all be from somewhere we can't change where we come from but we can hold the hope in a God who is compassionate and patient with us as we find our way. I'd like to extend a special thank you to my guest today, Dr. Melody Roshman. If you'd like to continue to follow her journey or read her dissertation, you can find her on Instagram at MelodyOfLife, or you can simply Google Dr. Melody Roshman and find her on Twitter and other social media platforms. In addition to curious conversations, if you are enjoying the content, please be sure to rate the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to send in your personal stories or curious questions, you can do so at Kendra R. Snow with the next, on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow our sponsor Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship and be sure to sign up for their newsletter where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International.